I'm Sean Sheehan. And I'm Rodney Robinson. And this is the Teacher's Caucus Podcast. This meeting of the Teacher's Caucus is now in session. I'm Sean Sheehan, and I'm kicking off a new series for y'all. So uh, as I had mentioned to Rodney before, I started, I went back to school. I've been out of formal school for like 10 years. And I started with um, an an ed tech, uh, sorry, not ed tech, what was I thinking? (laughs) Education policy program through Texas Tech University. That's where the tech came from. And so I've invited two of my colleagues on to talk about our just we're we're only a couple weeks into the program. We're all brand new to it. We've all been out of school for just a bit. Uh, so I wanted to talk through that with some friends of mine. So I've got Carissa and Chris joining me. Carissa, we'll start with you. Will you introduce yourself to the Teachers Caucus listeners? Yes, absolutely. Thanks for having us on, Sean. Um, my name is Carissa Duran. I'm actually located down here in Southern California in San Diego County. Um, so across the country from Sean and the rest of my my classmates there. Uh, if you uh, ever run into me on a at an education conference and you're looking at my bio, you'll probably see my opening line is always, Carissa Duran is an educator in pursuit of justice. Um, and I always like to put that right up front in um, every introduction that I have because my, uh, my background in education, um, I, I think is kind of interesting. Um, but in every role that I've had, I think Pursuing justice is the, is my my goal within um, this space. Um, so I used to I started out teaching um, in the classroom. I was a ninth grade English teacher, a humanities teacher um, in eleventh grade. I moved into instructional coaching. So I supported a school and then a school district in uh, literacy, um, educational technology assessment, um, English language development. And that actually took me on my most recent detour into um, the world of consulting. So I've been an educational consultant for the past couple of years, um, working in the educational technology space, but focused more on um, supporting county offices out here in California in identifying and um, applying for winning, executing grant-funded programs from the California Department of Education. Um, So that's most of the work that I'm doing right now. Um, and, and a little spoiler, um, I am actually going to be taking a new job in a couple of weeks here back with my local school district. Um, and, you know, can't offer too many details of that just yet, but that's sort of, uh, where I'm heading and that's who I am. So thank you so much. Right on. Thank you, Carissa. Now let's go back to Texas with Chris. Thank you, Sean. And thank you, Carissa for, uh, the warm welcome. I'm excited to be here with with you all. I'm glad we're pursuing the education policy uh, program together. I know that uh, doing this uh, work with folks like you and the rest of our cohort and the faculty uh, will make it a successful outcome for all of us. Uh, I so my name is Chris McGilvery. I'm the uh, founder and executive director of a national nonprofit, the Leaders Readers Network. Uh, but I've also held several different. Uh, educational uh, jobs previously. I I was a middle school teacher. I worked in higher ed, uh, preparing future teachers. I did uh, instructional design as well at different institutions, helping faculty with online learning or technology, uh, utilizing technology to to support uh, teaching and learning. Uh, But throughout my experiences, I I know that education uh, has provided myself with so many great opportunities and I want to make sure that we 
are able to ensure our teachers, our students at schools have uh, all the resources needed to to help each student reach their full potential. And so that kind of goes back to being here with you guys uh, in the program. Yeah. Well, thanks to the both of you for for hopping on the podcast. So it's 2022, it's fall. Carissa, why on earth would you start a PhD program, an online one, no less? Like, what was the thought process that you're like, you know what, I need to go back to school? Well, uh, actually, similar to you, I have been out of school for 10 years, uh, almost exactly. Um, And the timing, if I'm perfectly honest, is a long, long time ago, I put a PhD on my bucket list. And specifically, I put PhD by 40. I'm not going to tell you my age, but you can guess that I'm running out of time. So that's <laughs> that's why the timing. In terms of why a doctorate and why an ed policy doctorate and why an ed policy doctorate at Texas Tech, um, that has a lot more to do with the fact that I was um, just really fortunate to spend most of my career at an extremely innovative, um, really high-performing um sort of magnet school, magnet high school, um, that's situated within a pretty traditional school district. Um, and so policy came up quite a bit. Like I, I started um, at that school in 2013, opened it, right? One of the founding teachers. Um, and we wrote all the policies for the school from grading practices and policies to expectations for teachers and linked learning and, and curriculum and every, everything. Um, and and the tension between being a highly progressive um, school and cohort of teachers and being situated within a really traditional um, local education agency that still required the same traditional outcomes to be reported and all of that. Um, it was it was an, an interesting, to say the least, and just an extremely eye-opening experience. Um, one of my principals at that school told me um, at one point when at one point when I was arguing with her about what we were and were not allowed to do, she said, you know, you're actually right. You could just tell us no and not do it because these are our practices here for the last six years, but they're not policies. They're not written down anywhere and nobody can hold you to them. Right. And so she really helped me to recognize the importance of not just deciding to do, you know, what one might consider the right thing for students, but actually working to formalize that into policy. Um, And policy has always been an interest of mine. Um, Before I became a teacher, I had considered, you know, even going to law school and, and working with law in that way. And I just didn't love, I didn't love that very much. But I still like the idea of, of the impact that legal documents that policy could have on um, what what folks can do, and I believe that education um, can still be, in spite of all of its issues, the the saving grace of society. Uh, so I want to work towards improving that, and I think we work towards improving that by developing, uh, you know, really um, like human focused, student centered, um, holistic policies that can serve as a framework for schools to do the right thing. Um, and that's why I chose Ed Policy as my doctorate. Um, I'm going to wrap this up really quick because I'm chatting a lot, but Texas Tech was one of only a couple of schools that offered the kind of ed policy PhD focus, right, research focus program um, out there. And I lived in Southern California. So Texas Tech offering this online version just made it accessible to me. And accessibility right. is just uh, was, you know, kind of 
kind of the, the thing that um, that tipped the scales in favor of this particular program and this particular timing. Yeah. Well, thanks, Chris. Chris, what do you what are your thoughts on that? Why did you start? It's fall twenty twenty two. I got to do this. Why? What was your your thought process? You know, I think uh, the word policy is something that uh, not everyone is really understands, you know, what, what does policy do and how it can enact change and who can get involved. And um, I, I think it's great that uh, Carissa, you were able to have those conversations with a colleague, you know, to, to talk about that. Whereas many teachers and or stakeholders are a part of our public education systems and they might not know how uh, policy impacts decisions that affect their life and their their future. And so um, I think I have a non-traditional path to, to this. Uh, I, I always knew I wanted to pursue uh, a doctorate, uh, but I didn't realize I was going to pursue the education policy doctorate. Uh, within the last decade, I started a nonprofit and uh, quickly realized that each school works differently. Each uh, region of where schools are located work differently and being able to interact uh, and develop partnerships with different uh, school districts to implement the leadership and literacy projects that we, we offer um, was, was, was and is a rewarding experience. Uh, but it comes down to looking at policy and program evaluation to me. Like I want to be able to grow the work that I'm doing, not only uh, with the Leaders Readers Network, but also supporting nonprofit organizations and or school districts to really look at programs and policies in ways that we, we could evaluate the effectiveness of it and how is it truly supporting each of our stakeholders. And so um, I have lots of questions that I hope to un- you know uncover during this uh a PhD journey, uh, and, and I'm excited to do that with uh, folks like y'all. Yeah, well, I'll say for myself, I yeah. So the timing was right, Chris, as you had said. Uh, you know, I've got a five year old and a one year old, and so I, I, I'm, I'm blessed to be around. I, I would say a lot of folks that have, who have walked these steps. And so I knew that I, as, as my daughter is getting, you know, bigger, like I didn't want to be missing, you know, games or ballet recitals too many anyway. Um, so like do it when they're, they're young before we approach, you know, middle school sports where it gets serious, especially in Texas, you know? So, um, the price point was right for sure. If anyone's like just shopping things around, I mean, let's, let's, <laughs> let's have that very like clear conversation. Uh, you know, we're just, my wife is also a classroom teacher, so we're not like rolling in dough, <laughs> um, but that, that, I mean, that was a key contributing factor and so just like why we did it. And then, you know, I've had a lot of folks just kind of plant that seed, the PhD one, like multiple times. But when I first really seriously considered it was I had a principal who would kind of ingest, he would call me Dr. Sheehan. Uh, mm. This is probably 2017. And I was like, what are you talking about? He's like, come on, man, we already know. Like, and I was like, you already know what? Like, it's like, you're, you're just on that level, man. And I was... um you know, flattered for one, but I was like, there's just, there's no way like, you know, in that time frame. And then, you know, what's funny is uh, I attended this round table discussion with uh, one of our, our Congress people uh, for Texas and the name tent they made for me was Dr. Sean Sheehan. And I was like, uh, so this is actually, uh, this is an error. 
And her her staffer was like, oh, I thought, because we had talked on the phone, we had communicated already. She's like, ah, I could have swore you were, I thought you had. I was like, nope. And then it was kind of like the internalized, I was like, dang, but like, why don't you though? Like if, <laughs> if folks are already thinking you're on that level. And then the last thing I'll throw out is I'm on this uh, National Academy's work uh, and I'm the only person in this group without their, you know, PhD. And so feeling not like, um, I, I do feel like I belong at the table, uh, but that's the thing that I feel like will give me more access to those kinds of conversations uh, that I want to be a part of, right? Like sometimes that's, you know, it. Um, there comes with that kind of a level of, um, it's not like respect. I mean, people will respect you anyway, especially with your body of work, but it, there is a little bit, right? Like the degree is just kind of like, a, oh, okay, well, you know, maybe you get more panelist invites or maybe, you know, for my own self, it's like if I know that I've spent enough time just really researching these, I've I've done more reading in the last seven weeks that we've done, probably the last like three years of my life. I so uh, in like the best possible way, and so yeah, it, the time is right, the program is right, the price is right, like all the things are in the right place that I feel like you know four years from now I definitely want to be doing that. And so let me ask this, let me pose this question to you. I mean, four years from now, it's it's twenty. 26, like, what are you, what jobs are you applying for? What do you, if everything goes according to plan, what are Carissa and Chris doing with their newly ad- obtained PhDs? That, that's funny. Cause I'll ask, you know, I'll, I'll meet someone that's in their fourth or fifth year of their PhD studies or their uh, PhD candidate. And I'm like, what did, when you entered the program, what did, where did you see yourself going? And a common theme that I, I, I hear is that, I thought I was going to do the academic track, but I'm more interested in working in the policy advocacy track or, you know, things change. So be, be open with, with flexibility. And so, um, I don't know, like I, I really would like to, uh, work in academics and, uh, be able to, uh, pass on this knowledge, disseminate to our younger generations in ways that they could also enact change. Um, you know, I think all of the things that I'm learning through the program is something that I want to hopefully apply to uh, the Leaders Readers Network and the work that we're doing, uh, or even consult, you know, with with organizations uh, if they need a policy brief. Uh, I went to a, a community event just recently, and uh, I talked to one of their VPs and shared just a little bit of where I'm at. Uh, you know, and I said, I'm a poli- you know, ed policy uh, a PhD student at Texas Tech. And one of the first things that she said was, well, we might need to consult you later in the future. And so I think uh, there's just going to be a lot of different opportunities for all of us. Yeah, I think similarly, I don't have a very clear goal of what I want to do after in terms of a specific job title. Um, the specific impact it has always been to, um, to help inform policy from the perspective of somebody who's really centering um, the human aspect of education, um, students and teachers in particular, um, in, in a really community-centered manner, and using that to, to help um, you know, disrupt the predictably inequitable outcomes of marginalized communities. So I know the the impact I want to have, and I am not tied to any particular job title. Um, Like Chris, I did have um, at least a fleeting interest in in working in higher ed and academia. I've had a chance to, you know, be a 
adjunct professor at, for a, a master's program and, and help with teacher education. And, and I did like that work. Um, and I do really value um, supporting educators. But I realized through that, that I don't necessarily need to be their professor to support them. Um, and I actually liked supporting them better as an instructional coach at a district. And so um, mm. I'm not necessarily tied to any particular job title. I just want to um, to work with um, a, a ideally a, a regional agency, whether it's a county office or a nonprofit um, or a statewide agency to just help inform education policy. And maybe it looks like some more consulting because I'm already there. Maybe it's something more formal. I'm not exactly sure. Um, but after conversations with some of our professors um, around their journeys, I think that the program itself is a space to start to sort of figure that out as well. Yeah, absolutely. I agree with that. I mean, I think of the last, the past four years, and I've lived in a couple of different places, you know, from DC out here back to Texas. So like a couple of different job titles. I haven't the slightest, if I'm being <laughs> transparent, but I, I know that the things will fall into place, you know, and that um, this is the kind of work that I want to engage in. You know, I care a lot about systems. Like I care right. a lot about like, why do we do the things that we do in education? And so hopefully, you know, I'll be in a space where I can make some, some decisions about that. So let me ask you both this, like what, um, we're seven weeks in, like what is your focus or what is of most interest to you right now? You're like, I laugh. This is the thing that like, oh, this is interesting. Well, I, I think there's a lot of interests and I laugh sure. because what's my focus? I'm like, wow, I don't know. Like, I feel like I need to learn to focus and narrow and figure right. out like what, what is it that I, I want to because I'm interested in teacher leadership. I'm interested in ensuring that we retain and uh, we recruit and retain highly effective teachers, uh, a diverse teacher workforce that stays, you know, that remains within like the classroom to be able to impact these, the lives of the children in our communities across our, our, the U S the world. And so um, I'm also interested in the reading academies and, uh, how uh, we need to create more partnerships to ensure that kids are reading earlier in their, you know, kick zero to uh, zero to three uh, grade levels, and ensuring that uh, we can address all of the learning loss. I, I'm, it's, there's just so many issues that you know we're reading about and we know about uh, that needs to be addressed, and so I hope that I can focus a little bit more. Uh, as I, you know, continued uh, on with coursework. I mean, but I think one of the things that really um, speaks to my heart is a student advocacy. Hmm. I, I think that it's so important to ask, how was your K-12 experience? How was your middle school experience? Right before you leave to embark on the workforce or in higher education, whether it's a two-year journey or four-year journey or beyond, what 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 experiences did you enjoy? What helped you to be able to realize your potential? I, I think I don't think that we ask our, our youth these questions to really impact our systems in ways that they, you know, if we do, maybe there, we can unpack a lot more. Yeah. Um, I, the, the idea of unpacking is 
probably pretty central to um, my response to that question. My focus um, forever, um, and certainly since I wrote the application for this program, has been around assessment in education. And of course, you're in a policy program and you're interested in classroom assessment, you're probably um, going to have a pretty clear through line to accountability policy. Um, but the idea of unpacking assessment for me uh, yields way more questions and answers and way more sort of dimensions than I even thought when I first um, came into the program. I was just thinking, oh, I'm just going to find out, you know, what the accountability policies are and how that impacts um, like the programming at the county and district level and how that trickles down through like district communications to site administrators and how that impacts classroom practice. Like in my head, it was really clean, right? <laughs> like this uh, policy to practice pathway around assessment. And then um, we start reading about policy actors and we start reading about like the different uh, arenas and agendas and um, the rhetoric and the the use and misuse of research. And, and then I'm, you know, reading headlines that come out um, around California policy issues. And I see like the state of California has not released um, their smarter balanced state assessments from last year because, well, the because is very unclear, right? They're saying we're not going to release it in August like we normally do because we're waiting to set up a new California schools dashboard. And, and the public is sitting around with bated breath, just wondering how did we do? How did we do after our first year back in classrooms? Um, because, of course, measuring the impact of the pandemic is an ongoing you know, issue that's continuing to shape policy and will continue to do so for the foreseeable future. And I have my entire state withholding data that's normally released three months ago. I'm sitting here texting my, my colleagues from, my, from, pre, from other school districts in the area saying, did you guys get access to your data? Because... I think like they're not legally allowed to withhold it from LEAs, but they are withholding it from the public. And so research institutions um, can't get access to the data to start just, you know, making um, connections and, and, um, and well, <laughs> researching for lack of a <laughs> more specific term. And it's just so interesting to me that so much is um, so much is centered around assessment that this issue that I thought was um, maybe a, I mean, I knew it was complex, but this issue that I thought that was maybe a little bit more defined is not defined at all. And in a recent interview I had with uh, some colleagues um, doing a storytelling project with the Assessment for Learning um, project, I said, uh, it's like, even when it's not about assessment, it's about assessment. <laughs> everything, everything from graduation rates and credit recovery, acceleration, like all of it centers around how we're even assessing any of that stuff. And now my brain is just overflowing with curiosities. So what's a focus right now is assessment. What aspect of that? Lord knows. And um, I'm most interested in figuring out, like, is there a, a linchpin in this whole assessment conversation? Is there a thing that is um, most provoking, you know, um, policy development and shifts in practice? Um, or or is it going to be one of those answers we all love? Like, it depends. So that's what I'm really interested in right now. And I just think it's super, super cool that, you know, now as I'm in this program and as I'm reading the news like I normally do, now I'm seeing those connections um, just um, with a lot more um, clarity than I, than I have before. So you're saying that all this 
update testing that they did out in Cali last spring is not publicly available in, as of October of this year? Yeah. Well, I, the last time that I read an article was about a week ago because it was during our um, our policy foundations seminar last week when we were talking about when, you know, our professor asked, hey, what what headlines have you seen? And that was the headline that came to mind. I had just read it that same day and mm-hmm. I looked it up and to verify that that indeed was the case. And that's when I discovered, you know, the excuses, but the articles I read pretty much suggested, yeah, that they're exactly that. They're just excuses and there's no reason that they would need to withhold that data. They did, in fact, um, I don't know if I said this earlier, they did, in fact, release it to LEAs because my colleagues who are still working in school districts have told me that they analyze their data. So they know it. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just not it's just not publicly available the same way and at the same time that it has been since we started doing this assessment. Interesting. I know. (laughs) (laughs) So it seems like the majority of our classmates are based in Texas, but we have a few outside. So let me ask you this, Chris, just being from Cali and, you know, so we're the two larger states. Are the politics of education that different or are they, you know, are they pretty similar? I I would say they're pretty similar. And um, I think in that, that same class we were just referencing, um, you two will, will remember that we just had a little exercise during our seminar where we sort of outlined the uh, the powers at play um, in our local context. And when I did that with colleagues who are, of course, um, based in Texas, and we look at a particular local education agency in Texas, um, other than changing the names of a few levels of, of power structures, it's it's really similar, right? Like, you know, uh, Texas and California in particular. So I actually work with um, an international education technology company. And what's interesting is every time I talk to colleagues in that space, um, unless I'm talking to somebody from Texas, there's a lot of really glaring differences. People are saying, that doesn't exist. We don't have that middleman. Like, what is that? Hmm. But, you know, the the region structure of Texas is really similar to the county office structure of California. And for that reason alone, there tends to be a lot more overlap in the way um, education policy and politics plays out. Um, The big difference, I would say, is um, we have really strong unions out here, (laughs) really strong unions. And that's maybe something that has been um, pretty unique in the conversations that I've had with you all. Um, but other than that, I see, I see a lot of overlap. Yeah. Well, I'll say my, I would say what's of most interest to me right now is, yeah, very much thinking about how those, the interplay between policy actors, and I've witnessed it at, at state and federal levels, um, in real time. And, and most of that is, I would say is pretty accurate, but it's nice to be able to put some, uh, some terms to the things that I saw. Right. So like the game theory thing was really interesting to me. Uh, that we were reading about and just how folks might approach that work. Um, and I had joked, you know, we had tasked, uh, shoot, you know what? I got to reply to that discussion board thing. Now that I was just thinking about it, but our, our last discussion <laughs> post was like, and, and maybe I was way off base, but I thought we were supposed to like create our own framework based on like what we were read. And that may be completely inaccurate, but I went ahead and created one. I was just like, jo- I don't know if you had seen it, but I was joking. I said, I'm gonna call it contention theory. And that I think all policy is rooted in contention, right? Like that. Oh, right. That it, uh, nothing. If everyone agreed to the thing, then it's not an issue, right? Like no one's requesting changes in policy, so that like by default, policy is only created after folks disagree. And that uh, you know, in the modern age, that like, poli- like when it comes to politics and elections and all that, like we're rewarded 
when your your statements are more incendiary, right? Or they're more controversial or they're more contradictory. Like your middle ground politics are not rewarded on social media with likes and retweets and any of that. No one wants just a, a video or a TikTok of someone saying like, hey, let's consider both sides to the school choice option. It's like, no, that's not interesting at all. Like I want you to take a stance and stick your flag in the ground and be really like fiery in your speech about why you think all assessments need to go away or no, we need to double down on it. Or, right. you know, so just like... I, I think that's the dynamic at play right now. And so I'm just really interested in how I think, you know, how, how, how I think that what folks used to think ed policy used to be and how it interacted and how it, you know, was developed and implemented and how it really, like how it really, really works out and how it really, really works out. Refining can be a lot of different ways. There's not like a single model, but sometimes it's a conversation between two folks and sometimes it's a conversation between large groups of folks. Um, and then, and then for me is like, what's my entry point? Like, how can I have a maximum impact on those conversations in truly meaningful ways? Because I'm used to being on the sidelines and I'm used to even being at the tables, but I haven't been in the spot where I felt like I could point to something and say like, yeah, like I did that, or I had a direct hand in that. Everything I always needed to be done was like, I was waiting for someone else to make that call. Um, you know, Chris and I were talking about HB 4545 um, out here in Texas that just, you know, is, is, is punitive and says that ki the kids who don't pass the state tests, you know, they've got 30 hours of, of um, accelerated learning is what they've got to sit through. And with my district, uh, you know, we advocated pretty strongly against it. We're like, look, there's no variation in this. The kid misses the test by one point or 100 points. They're all getting the same like prescriptive 30 hours, right? You get 30 hours and you get 30 hours. Um, and we, we, we made a really good case and a lot of folks made a good case for just like why, why this policy was going to be problematic when it came time to implement it. Whether, even though we were using ESSER funds, like this is still going to be problematic. It's still like a workload issue and our folks are already like overworked. Now as the person who is running, I'm the designated like 45, 45 person on my campus. No. Like, yeah, it, that work is real. Like, so it was a trip to go from like advocating against the bill, bill gets passed anyways. Like they're like, thanks, we got your letters, uh, hard pass. Like we're, we're going to move forward with it. And then I left the the director of governmental affairs role to be back on a campus and like I implement it. And you're like, oh, this is like so deflating. Like everything from arranging transportation for all the kids that needed to come up in the summer and work on this, their 30 hours and like reporting how many of these hundreds of kids have met that requirement and also, if you're in public education, you don't think have to think very long or hard about the demographics of students who are subject to this requirement. It's all your LEP kids, your limited English proficient, special education, you know, students who are receiving those services. So, um, and then, you know, you're, you're, you're limiting their opportunities, right? So like if you're saying, well, you have to have 30 hours and it can't happen during the day during like core classes and we can't pull you from PE or those sorts of things. Well, okay, well then when are they, like, when are they getting those hours? So all that to say, like, this is a very specific example of, like, I, I, I know they, like, consulted people on this. <laughs> and I had asked the question multiple times of, like, who came up with 30 hours? Like, why is it 30? Like, is that the magic number? I couldn't find any research that said, yes, 30 hours of remediation will then get the kids where they need to be on grade level. I, you know, I, I couldn't find that. And so, you know, that's like a really... I would say that was kind of the last straw. Not, I mean, not there wasn't the last straw, but like that was the thing. It was like, you know what? I need to be in this arena. Like, I need to be in this arena so I can be on the stage. I'm tired of like sitting in the stands. I've had the nosebleed seats and I've had ringside seats, 
but I haven't like been on the stage. Um, not since like, not, yeah, not since like 2016 when in Oklahoma, when we were trying to figure out the teacher pay thing. And then there was a walkout the following year and all that. So, uh, okay. Well, that was like, that was a lot. Hey, let me ask one more question before we kind of wrap up, uh, for anyone who's like probably in our like age range career, like mid career level, um, what, like, what's, what advice do you have for someone who's thinking about like applying or going back to school? Yeah. Let me, let me frame it that way. Like what advice do you have? You've got a, a mid 30 something approaching 40 or something. They've got a couple kids, okay. maybe you know, like what's, <laughs> What's your advice to them? Like, okay, you just started. Like, how's it going? Tips for success. What do you got? Oh, my. I feel like it's going to sound really basic, but I think um, time is the big factor um, in a lot of this. I think, um, you know, even as you were talking right now about being, you know, nosebleeds ringside and not quite being in the game, um, I think a lot, I, I, that resonated with me a lot. And I thought about opportunities that I had to be on the stage where I actually declined to just be ringside because yeah, of time. Yeah. And I think that same thing translates into this, this program or programs, you know, like this going back to school is um, time is always going to be a limited resource. You're never going to be able to get it back. Um, it's the most expensive thing you can spend. And this is four years. It's it's a busy four years. And so um, I think you said it, Sean, in your story around, um, you know, thinking about the timing with your kiddos. I know mine was a little bit less important than worrying about my children. <laughs> mine was just not wanting to be 40 without a doctorate. Um, but t- timing is, as they say, everything. Um, so I would just say, you know, evaluate evaluate the way that you're spending your time right now, the the way that you would ideally want to be spending your time for the next four years, and then erase all of that and devote 90% of your time to your doctorate. And then, and then decide if that's something that you can and want to do at, at that time. Um, you know, it's, uh, it's interesting um, that, that this, this culture of busyness in our society, um, sometimes leads people to make decisions that are rash and um, they, they think, oh yeah, I can put more time into that. And, and it's because we have this culture of busyness where we encourage one another to do that. And I don't want to discourage anyone from um, further education. I love being, I love school. I think everybody should go get a doctorate. Um, And I think again, timing is everything and we make time for what's important to us. And so just evaluate the way that you want to spend that precious resource. Yeah. Chris. And if you're thinking about doing, you know, pursuing a PhD in ed policy, I think now is the time, you know, quite honestly, there's so many shifts that are happening in our society and also in our educational systems. Uh, It's time, you know, to, to be able to be a part of a program like Texas Tech University Education Policy Leadership, where you could gain those skills to research and analyze policy and um, share those best policy uh, recommendations so that we could impact change. And so um, I think oftentimes, uh, you know, if you're 
in the classroom or you're in, in education, you might think about how can I make a bigger difference? What can I do to make, you know, long-term impact? And I think that if that's something that you're thinking about, then, you know, you might consider applying for your PhD and go through that journey. I think also we got lucky our cohort's pretty incredible. We have some great, you know, people in our cohort that we can lean on. You know, I, I thought I handpicked you all, but <laughs> no, I didn't. I, we got lucky and it's nice to know that we're going through this journey together. And so if, if we can build that community as we celebrate and support the challenges and the success of this program, I think we're going to come back to this conversation four years down the road and celebrate and you're you know you're going to be able to uh present at you know different maybe the school districts or advocacy organizations bringing a whole community a local community together to advocate for a certain bill that needs to be implemented and so i'm excited to see where where we all end up for sure and i would say i guess if anyone was weighing because i had to I didn't quite know the difference between EDD and PhD. Um, I would, for the PhD route, like it's got to really be something that you're interested in, that you're interested in and something that like, yes, I could consume and read all the articles about this one like subject. And you got to like, you got to really like be good with that. Cause otherwise it's going to be a long program. If you're kind of on the fence about it, you're like, eh, I'm kind of interested in ed policy. Not so much. Okay. Like it's gotta be, you gotta be all in. Uh, cause then it'll just be like work, work. Um, so the, cause, cause as Christy said, it's, it's, it's a, it's a function of your time. And so for me, it's like, if I'm, if I'm telling my daughter, like, no, I can't, you know, read to her tonight, you know, mom's got to do that. Uh, then my time needs to be really well spent on something that I is, is of interest and, and I care about. And thus far it's, it's held true. So I'm still like learning some of this stuff. So Chris, I look forward to your graphs on like bivariate regression and all that fun stuff. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yes. Little data talk. We'll, we'll, we'll save the data convo for another time. Um, (laughs) So let's pivot to, and that's not a diss at all (laughs) to our data class. That's just like, that's the thing I think we're all probably working through the most when you're out of school for a good bit, you're like, Oh yeah. Like math. And I taught math. So it's like, Right. Yes. Uh, <laughs> so it's good stuff. But I'm hey, let's, comfortable uh, with it. Let's just say that I'm comfortable with data management and data. Yes, and yes, I'm getting there. There you go. Progress, no doubt. Well, so homework assignment. So, what is that? Uh, is there a resource that you want to flag for folks in your local area? So for Chris, we're out in West Texas, and Carissa down in South California, Southern California. Um, what's your homework assignment for anyone who's listening in? For this episode? Gosh, um, I think in general, I think everyone and in, in, in my local community here in West Texas, I think this could apply to everybody. Just meet your local school board members, get nice. to know your school board members and uh, the policies that they're enacting in your community that are impacting the teachers, the students, the schools. What are, what are some of the challenges that they're facing? Get to know those so that you could be on the, the radar of you know, being a part of whatever change needs to happen. We, we know that in this area, the enrollment is down. So I think the superintendent uh, recently uh, stated uh, a few weeks ago 
that 2015, the enrollment was around 35,000. Today, it's 29,000, which is millions and millions of dollars that are in deficit. And he even mentioned that we have to reimagine those schools that have students that have 100 students here, 300 students here, and 200 students, and maybe even cluster them together because we can't necessarily operate schools in that way because of the budget constraints. And so um, I think if we can get to know our school board members and understand the challenges that our public schools are facing, we'll have a more understanding of what, why changes are happening. What, what, when can I make those, you know, recommendations during a time that a policy, maybe agenda is, is, is taking place locally, you know, and so then their feedback is a part of it. So get to know your school board members. Yeah. Right. Chris took the answer right out of my mouth. <laughs> I was actually, I was also going to say, go to a school board meeting and just listen, just even if you are not ready to take that step into advocacy, I think being present, um, being present does things right. Even, even in the conversations we've had in class so far, um, just thinking about who are, who are the participants, what is the venue and what are they saying? Like pay attention to the rhetoric and, and see what's really going on. Don't be distracted by all the red herrings and the, the hot button comments and really pay attention to the actual policies that are being passed. And um, I think that's the most important thing that our community can do to to advocate for the students of our communities. Um, I was actually even thinking back to your comments you were making earlier, Sean, again, that those comments around, um, you know, being in the fight and being ringside are just continuing to... Um, turn in my mind. And I just think there, there's so much that has happened in society as a result of not formal leadership and not formal advocacy groups and not, and not formal um, like policy player roles, but just grassroots um, advocates who are willing to put the time into um, defending a belief, right. Defending students, um, and so I think, you know, access is a, um, access is so important and your school board meeting is that point of access for every single person in the community, whether you're leading the school board meeting, whether you're um, a business in the community, whether you're a teacher in the district, whether you're a teacher in the feeder district to that district, right? Like no matter who you are, the school, school board meeting is an open access point for absolutely everyone. And so when we're thinking about sitting on the sidelines, um, I think, you know, the homework is get off the sidelines and get into the arena. I think that's, um, that's it for me. Yeah. Um, gosh, my homework assignment for DFW folks, I would say, uh, education's on the ballot here in about a month. Um, in a way that it hasn't been before. And also to any of, you know, I mean, I think that's, I think that's always true, but it's definitely true this time. And those midterm elections are so critical. And so, I, you know, I know like a lot of folks will have their, their other social issues that they're voting based on. Um, and you can't negate those, but I would just challenge you to make sure that your candidate is as, as pro public education as, as possible. The thing is, as I'm saying that now, I realize like um, folks like conceptions of like public education are shifting quite a bit, too. So your candidate like what you're like, yeah, that's my guy. And then your guy is like, um, 
no, schools are failing and we're going to undo everything that's been done. So uh, don't vote for that person. I'm trying to think of like how I want to <laughs> frame that. <laughs> you know what? Look, like if that's your guy, that's your guy and like get involved and that's fine. But as, as we're like, like we can't keep doing school the same way that we've been doing it. Um, that's never been more true after like post COVID. So if you've got kids in the system, I'll, I'll say this, like as someone whose kids are just entering the system, like they're just getting their careers in school started and my daughter's got a long-term sub at like a fantastic school like this is like we've got to make sure we're putting things in place so that their experiences are 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 meaningful and you know the best possible way and as chris had alluded to earlier with the recruitment and retention thing like if folks don't have good ideas at the table for that then on to the next one because that's like first and foremost uh we can't just be put throwing folks in front of these kids hoping for the best and i know the system right like this is someone who's in the system and i like i have all the tools to like advocate and um and we're not exempt from that like teacher shortage issue so it's on the ballot even if they say it's not on the ballot and if if your candidate's stance on public education is muddy at all make sure that they're like waving that flag um and i would encourage you to vote for those folks who are pro public education um, let's shift now to extra credit. Extra credit is just kind of a catch-all for anything and everything that you want to throw out to the Teachers Caucus listeners. They do come from a wide... We do still have folks that are listening, by the way, because I know you guys are kind of newer to it. Um, you know, our audience, our, or excuse me, our, our panelists have largely con- consisted of State Teachers of the Year because that's Rodney and I's network. Um, but what that means is, like, with that is our listeners come from across the country and actually in different corners of the world as well. So what's an extra credit assignment you have for the Teachers Caucus listeners. Chris, we'll, we'll start with you. Goodness, I think I gave them enough homework that they don't need any extra credit. <laughs> <laughs> so something, uh, let's do something just maybe a little fun, a little lighter. You know, it's October, we're approaching the holiday season. Like, what do you got? Nothing. She's got nothing. Chris, we'll, co- we'll come back nothing. to you, Chris. <laughs> Chris. <laughs> She's like, I've, I've done so much homework that I don't need extra credit. <laughs> like we're, I don't, uh, we, true story, I don't even believe in extra credit. So that well, is not something that I do in my classroom. <laughs> I mean, like, so I'm going to lean in on the October theme that you said. So uh, take time for yourself, right? Go out and experience maybe, I won't go to a haunted house, but you can. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> or go to a fall festival and enjoy yeah. the, this you know just uh, the environment and have a cider or whatever drink of choice. Um, yeah, no, that's would be mine. Good answer. I think that's a good answer. I think uh, I've I've probably centered community a little bit in some of my responses, and I think that that is right in line with it. I think being a part of your community is so so important for your own well being, the well being of um, your family, your student the other folks in your community, your schools. Uh, I know a lot of schools right now, especially out here, but all across the country are like, they're, they're the ones that are hosting those fall festivals. Your ag pro, your local ag program is probably selling pumpkins or chickens. You know, if you need one, go, go to your local ag program at a school. I just think uh, fall is that time whenever the community is coming back together and taking part in your community is um, win-win for everyone. Yeah. My campus is holding a hosting Harvest Fest at the end of this month. See? So you should come They're through out in Louisville. It's going to be a good time. And yeah, just uh, I'll, I'll stay with y'all on that. Just like make time for yourself. And 
as you had talked to that that busyness that we embrace, Krista and society, and, and we are all very busy folks. Mm-hmm. Um, make sure you're carving out time for yourself. Find a good book. It doesn't have to all be scholarly articles. It can be just reading for fun. Uh, you know, get your tickets to Black Panther or whatever is going to take for you to just like. Nice. Oh, great series by the way. If you if you watch scary shows at all, uh, Midnight Mass on Netflix. By the way, oh, it's so I good. watched it. I'm with you. Yeah, it was. It's, I've got one more. I've got one more episode to go burn through them all in like the last. Yeah, it was it was great. So, I any, almost spoiled it. <laughs> yeah, please don't. Please don't. Any? Do you have any watch recommendations, Chris or Carissa? He's like I'm no, just going through Umbrella Academy for the second time. So, Umbrella, Umbrella Academy. Academy, nice. Or Hocus uh, Pocus two for all my millennial friends. I started Abbott Elementary. I thought that was it, it's. It seems you started it. Yeah, I, I actually nice. finally jumped on and, and yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm glad that season two's here, so it's good. Yeah, for it, sure. It, it's nice to see a show that highlights educators and all the things that they're going through. It's a great show. If you haven't seen it, add it to your list right now. And with that, this meeting of the teachers caucus is now adjourned. <laughs>